chapter five. Oh, y'all covered a lot of material last week. Is yeah. This, everyone has a light. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. So Trouty is our leader tonight. So who reads first? Probably Donna. I don't see Daniel. That. Daniel. Daniel. Sorry, Daniel. All right. <clears throat> I have to see the participants. Please go ahead. Um, everyone has a light. The Blue Cliff Record is a collection of old Zen teaching stories from China compiled in the 20th century. When you study a teaching such as Blue Cliff Record, what is the point you have to learn? Is it to get knowledge? Yes, it is, but also it is not because the original nature of your life is not something you can fully understand by ideas. If you try to fill your life just from the top by gaining knowledge, then your head is very big. But the knowledge you gain is hard to carry because it's pretty heavy. It makes your head spin and it's easy to lose your balance. Knowledge of Buddhism is always bothering you because the container is bottomless, so you can never get enough. Finally, everything turns into suffering and there's nothing to encourage you. Emily? Does that mean you should stop thinking and studying? No way. You are a human being. You have to think. Thinking is pretty good for us. But don't be bogged down with thinking. Don't make your head ache. If your head begins to ache, stop thinking and take care of yourself. Sooner or later, you will have to think again. At that time, please think with kindness with friendliness. Milene? I think she wants to listen. But I think Kim's next. Right? Um, yes. Well, <laughs> well, the, yeah, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Kim. That's all right. I don't mind being forgotten. No, I'm not forgotten. I called you for something else. <laughs> and then we study and try to understand Buddhist teaching intellectually. We also practice and try to understand in a deeper way. In this way, instead of thinking and creating delusions, you can use thinking to calm down and touch something deep in your life. When you touch it, your life is filled from the bottom up and you become mature. Okay, so Milena now. I'll just listen, thank you. Okay, I suppose then that's me. Blue Cliff, record case 86. The title of case 86 is the Blue Cliff record 
is Yun Men's Kitchen Pantry and Main Gate. This case is about your great sublime capacity called like. Dogen was very interested in this case and mentioned it in Shobogenzo Komyo, like. Here is the main story translated by Thomas Cleary and J.C. Cleary. You men imparted some words saying, everyone has a light. When you look at it, you don't see it. It's dark and dim. What is everybody's light? He himself answered on their behalf, the kitchen pantry and the main <laughs> gate. He also said, a good thing isn't as good as nothing. Well, uh, right from the beginning, then again, Daniel. Yeah, that's me. Um, before we move forward, uh, can, can somebody briefly explain what's the blue cliff record? Is it some kind of ancient text or? Yeah, yes, well, Donna probably. Um, it is, I believe, the first koan collection that uh, was probably done in the maybe 11th century in China, of uh, where, um, well, I'm drawing a blank on, on the, the person who collected them, but I believe it's 100 cases uh, where they take uh, a teaching story uh, that uh, is rather mysterious, just like this one. And so you have the story, then you will have uh, a cryptic commentary, <laughs> and then you will have, or, and there's a poem also that serves as a commentary. And um, are you familiar with koans? Um, more or less. Well, that's, that's what the Blue Cliff record is. I believe it's the first uh, collection um, of the comment of these koans. So, and, and there are at least uh, the Book of Serenity is the koan collection that is a part of the Soto tradition in which we're practicing. Uh, and there's also another one uh, called the Gateless Gate. Uh, those are sort of the three big ones, but there are lots of, even Dogen had a collection of koans, though it's not as widely known as these. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Van Yan of Yun Men was an important teacher who died in 1949 in Southern China. In, he, in this story, Yun Men asked the monks, what is everybody's light? And then he, ans he answers his own question. According to his answer, light is the kitchen pantry and the main gate of the temple. But it could be your nose, your body, your house, your job, or your everyday routine because light manifests in every aspect of your life. Just a second. Emily, do you want to turn on the live transcript? I can't do it. Um, it's on the bottom and it says live transcript. 
enable. I see it, but I. No, Emily has to do it. Okay. Okay. It's been enabled. Great. That's it. Okay, cool. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. That is wonderful. But on the other hand, Yunmin also says a good thing isn't as good as nothing. He says so because if you think that every aspect of your life is already manifesting light, you can easily get stuck in everyday life. Then you ask, if my everyday life is already great light, why do I have to practice Zazen? The moment you ask, you are already stuck. Even when something is good, if you get stuck in your idea of good, you are choked by good. Finally, you don't know what good is. Then good turns into some human problem. For instance, if you work hard and create a beautiful life, you may attach to your life. You believe you are wonderful. No one else could do what I did. Then you become critical towards others. We are always measuring, comparing, and evaluating ourselves and others like this. But if you are thinking in that way, you are already stuck in a concept of your great capacity and you cannot move an inch. It's the same with spiritual practice. If you see something wonderful through your practice, you may attach <coughs> to what you have seen because it was a valuable experience for you. But when you are caught by the idea of what you experienced, it becomes a problem for you. That's why Yan Min says, a good thing isn't as good as nothing. I love it. Light is the original nature of your life. Everyone has that light. It is the core of your personality that Buddhism is always talking about. But it's very diff difficult to know what it is because light is nothing but energy, motion, or dynamic functioning. Your conscious mind can never pick up anything in particular. If you try to conceptualize it, your original nature is dark and dim for you because you can't see it in that way. So from the beginning, Daniel? Still, uh, still, even though it cannot be con conceptualized, it can be displayed because life is always functioning in your life. You can give play to it in every aspect of your life. So if you see something wonderful, don't get stuck. Accept it, experience it, and then keep your mouth shut your experience will never disappear. It stays with your life and penetrates. Penetrates. Penet oh, that's uh, penetrates your life. It's not necessary to attach to it. Let it go. Light and dark, the commentary of Blue Cliff Record, case 86. The commentary section of Yun Min's kitchen pantry and main gate is very interesting. Let's start with the third paragraph in the Thomas Clary and J.C. Clary translation 
and study the commentary line by line. It says, as soon as they hear you mention light, people these days put a glare in their eyes and say, where is the kitchen pantry? Where is the main gate? But this has nothing to do with it. Thus it is said, perceive the meaning on the hook. Don't abide by the zero point on the scale. This matter is not in the eye or in the environment. To begin to understand, you must cut off knowing and seeing, forget gain and loss, and become purified, naked, and perfectly at ease. Each and every one must investigate on his own. Buddhism always tries to explain the dynamic structure that interconnects your life with all beings from moment to moment. We do this so you will know that by wholeheartedly using your body, your consciousness, your personality, and your education, you can return to the origin of the self and see the total picture of your life. Zen practice is to just constantly return to zero. But when I tell you that by practicing with wholeheartedness, you can become zero, you are immediately hooked by the idea of zero. Then you want to know what is zero. If I become zero, who am I? Kim? If you are measuring and evaluating your life, there is always some word that can become a hook. Your consciousness, your body, your understanding can also become hooks. Instead of enjoying the great capacity you already have, <coughs> you are looking for something outside yourself. So to understand your life as a whole, train yourself to cut off your usual way of knowing and seeing and just be the, the functioning of life right now, right here. This is a hard practice, but if you do it, the total dynamic activity of your life lets you be zero. If everything becomes zero, does that mean there's nothing? No, light of the self sometimes appears in the realm of the space and sometimes in the realm of time. Self is functioning every day in the realm of time. So there are many beings. That self is the whole universe, winter, little boys and girls, a kitchen pantry, or the main gate of a temple. That's why the kitchen pantry is light. Okay, shall I read? Yes or no? <laughs> Nobody says anything. Okay, I read. Even toilet paper is light of the self. Through using toilet paper with a warm heart, you can return to zero and learn who you really are. But if you become zero and then get hooked by zero, zero is no longer zero. So whatever idea you have attached to, let it go and return to zero again and again. This is our practice. Just a little note uh, I want to say. So zero here is uh, shunyata, right? So zero is also emptiness. Are you saying zero is emptiness? 
Well, the, this is this is how I see it right now. Okay. Or could it be um, the surrender to letting go of preconceived notions? Well, yes. I mean, the original uh, Shunyata Zero. Uh, actually, that in mathem Indian mathematics, uh, zero is Shunyata, and apparently Indians invented zero. And uh, here he uses it as a method for practicing, right? So there were different teachers who actually uh, used zero or talked about zero. Well, uh, probably you may know about uh, Nagarjuna who, um, I shouldn't say played with it, but, you know, examined it uh, in so many different ways. Um, and he really made a great impact with it. And of course, as time went on, especially out of, out of India, uh, there will be different ways uh, of explaining um, the teachings. And each of the teachers will have quite different expl explanations. Thank you, Trouty. I love the idea of uh, um, Nagarjuna playing with zero. I mean, that just puts a whole different light on, <laughs> on some of his philosophical texts that will be make them much more delightful. <laughs> yeah, I think he started when he was three. No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, you know, they, they did actually, my, my traditional teacher, he, he started, I think, at the age of four. And uh, he, he could get the highest degree in the traditional at the age of 15 or 16. And then he did a Western PhD by 21. So yes, they, that, that is true, they, they started really very early, but it was memorization of the traditional things. Okay, so um, now- I guess uh -huh. it's me, yeah. Okay. Um, the next three lines of the commentary are, say, are another saying from Yunmen. Yunmen said, you come and go by daylight, you distinguish people by daylight. In daylight, the world of phenomena is visible and you can distinguish everything very clearly. In darkness, you cannot make any distinctions. So in Zen Buddhism, darkness often represents truth or the ultimate principle of existence. Sometimes we say equality because when you cannot distinguish things, everything becomes equal. Daylight and darkness seem to be completely separate, but we cannot separate them because they are dynamically interconnected. According to the teaching of impermanence, the world of light, phenomena, and distinction constantly flows into the world of darkness, truth, and equality. Darkness, truth, and equality constantly flow into light, distinction, and phenomena. 
So finally, you have to go beyond ideas of distinction and equality and see their interconnection. Then equality can be seen in distinction and distinction can be seen in equality. Seeing in that way is seeing from a universal perspective. Daylight means seeing the human world from the universal perspective. When you touch truth working deep in your own life, the whole world becomes bright and you see people as they truly are. Kim? It's very difficult for us to see people that way because we enjoy playing in the world of conceptualization so much that we get stuck there. For example, according to your conceptual understanding, <coughs> a table is a table. But when you think in that way, you are already stuck because a table is something more than your concept of a table. If you break a table up and put it in the fireplace, it is wood fuel. If you sit on it, it is, it is a chair. We cannot say what it is exactly because the table is constantly changing according to circumstances. The table can change because it is within the spiritual source, which is working dynamically. To express this, we say the table is a table as it truly is, and the table is thusness. If you see a table, as something more than your conceptual understanding and concept, <coughs> the table straightforwardly, the table is shining light. The table is very clear and bright because your ability to distinguish things as they truly are is functioning, not stuck. When you perceive the table as it truly is, you communicate with the table in the realm where the table and you are interconnected. Then wisdom lets you take best care of the table with your consciousness, with your body and with your words. It's the same with seeing people. So if you want to see people as they, are, as they really are and understand each other, let's see people by daylight. Suddenly it's midnight and there is no sun, moon, or lamplight. In this line, there is no light shining in the darkness of midnight, so you cannot see the truth. That means you are stuck. Maybe you have understood your life from the universal perspective, so you think you are free to distinguish people of different races and cultural backgrounds in daylight. But watch out, the moment you start thinking in that way, you cut yourself off from your light by egoistic thinking. Your light starts to flicker and truth is no longer bright for you. Then you don't see people as they really are. You see a flashing light called prejudice. This is fantastic. I, I always see my own prejudice like a little flashing light. I am a person who conveys Buddhist teachings based on peace and equality. So I always tell myself, don't distinguish between people based on prejudice. 
Don't be critical towards people of different cultural backgrounds. Since I came to the United States, this has been my constant practice. Well, after 25 years, I'm still practicing this. When I see an American, I immediately see the flashing light that says, oh, you are American. You don't understand <laughs> Buddhism. I confess, I cannot work out this flashing light. It's the same with my students. Even though they tell me, Katagiri, you are a great teacher. I don't believe them because still they say, oh, you are Japanese. I don't like Japanese. If you see the subtle flashing light, you are stuck in conceptualization. But don't be afraid of the flashing light. <coughs> you are a human being. As long as you have human consciousness, you see this flashing light. Without the consciousness that sees this, that sees this flashing light, you cannot be a human being. So finally, all I can do is accept myself as a human being. Then right in the middle of seeing the flashing light of prejudice, I cannot say stuck. I have to go beyond my prejudice and see people as they really <coughs> are. The more you attain enlightenment, the more you see yourself in the realm of the flashing light. The more you see it, the more you suffer. That's why the Bodhisattva suffers. Yeah. That's how Bodhisattvas can understand human beings very deeply. So open your heart and accept that flashing light. Then walk side by side with all beings. Work hard every day to communicate with warmness and compassion. Very naturally, your great capacity will manifest itself. And by its light, you can see how the, de you can see how the depth of your personality is cultivated. If it's some place you have been to, then of course it's possible. In a place you've never been, can you even manage to get hold of something? Spiritual life is kind of like a realm, a place, a world. If you have been in that realm, even slightly, then it is possible for you to accept that such a place exists. But what about a place where you have never been? That place is also your life. So I think you should accept two places, a place where you have been and a place where you have never been. When you accept that there is a place where you have never been, your mind becomes open, magnanimous, and straightforward. She does merging of difference and sameness says, right within light there's darkness, but don't see it as darkness. Right within darkness there's light, but don't meet it as light. The merging of difference in unity, Sandakai, is a poem composed in China by Zen master Sakito Kisen, Shitu Shikyan. 
these four lines of the poem say that in the daylight world of distinction, you can understand that the world of equality is also there, but still you have to deal with everyday life wholeheartedly. That's pretty good for us. If you see the midnight world of equality, light is also there. So there is something more you have to do. Saying, don't meet it as light means don't distinguish anything. Go beyond any discriminating thought and just deal with light as it truly is. Kim? Within light, there is darkness. <laughs> Sorry. And, oh, okay. and within darkness, there is light. So darkness and light are always together. That is oneness. That is very important. That is a very important lesson, particularly in Zen Buddhism. Dojin Zenji said, when one side appears, the other is in darkness. It's like a sheet of paper. When you use one side of the paper, the other side is simultaneously there. As a practical matter, it's not necessary to point out the other side. All you have to do is use this side and the other is already with you. If you cut off light and darkness, tell me, what is it? Thus it is said, the mind flower emits light, shining on all the lands in the 10 directions. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Going beyond any thought of light and dark, you can return to zero and just be alive. Maybe you are afraid to return to zero, but if you want to make your life deep, you have to practice this. To be a master mountain climber, a master football player, or a master painter, you have to do this. Whatever it is, if you don't return to zero and just do it, you cannot become a master of anything. I wonder oh, if, if this returning to zero is what we call beginner's mind. Donna thinks so. Well, it is in all, all these teachings, right? Oh, I see what you mean, yes. So there are different approaches that may become methods, right, Donna? Oh, yeah, definitely. But at the end, um, it is still about just that one, one thing. And what's the one thing? Shunyata, the emptiness, the zero, the, the, the light um, that doesn't have any duality and but, but I, I was thinking the one thing um, is also to end suffering. Well, yeah, the, once uh, uh, you are able to have uh, those experiences, especially if you can stay, stay in it, um, definitely you, you will be able to end suffering. And uh, 
in the Indian point of view, uh, also not uh, repeat rebirth. Who's reading? Well, uh, Daniel you, was reading after you. Yes. Uh, for example, if you say, just be kind to others without expecting anything, and you do it, but while you are doing it, you are constantly thinking, I must just be kind without experiencing anything. Then a thought is still coming up. The real meaning of just be kind is that finally even this thought doesn't appear. That is no thought we say. There is nothing to say, just silence. This is the realm of spiritual life. If you have never been in the realm of spiritual life, it is pretty mysterious for you. But when your spiritual life actually appears, there is no mystery. It is very clear because the mind flower is blooming. When a spiritual flower blooms, it emits light. This flower is your life. This light is the great capacity you already have. When your mind flower blooms, there is light shining on the whole world. Panchan said, light isn't shining on objects, nor do the objects exist. Light and objects both forgotten. Then what is this? When you see kindness as an object for you to attain, you have to tell yourself, just be kind. But if you go beyond even the thought of being kind, there is no object. If you don't see an object, very naturally, there is no subject. Your sense of individual self drops off. What's left? Just the state of being completely kind. Your life is just the pure activity of kindness itself. Also, it was said, this very seeing and hearing is not seeing and hearing. But there's no other sound and form that can be offered to you. Here, if you can understand that there's nothing at all, you are free to separate, or not, essence and action. This very seeing and hearing is not your usual way of seeing and hearing. It is you and your object working together as one. Essence means the total universal picture of life. Action means the essence of your life <coughs> is acting day to day. That is real acting. When you are really acting, you cannot say you are <coughs> acting and you cannot say you are not acting. The activity of the universe and the activity of your life just become one action. Now the last paragraph of the commentary begins. Just understand Jung Men's final statement thoroughly. Then you can go back to the former one to roam at play. But ultimately, you do not make a living there. The ancient 
Vimal Kirti said, all things are established on a non-abiding basis. In real action, there is no opportunity for you to conceptualize anything. This is not pessimistic. It is full aliveness. That's why we have to train ourselves to go beyond thinking and deal with our great capacity as it truly is. is. From moment to moment, the lively energy of life is making your life alive. Right now, right here, this time and place where your life exists is constantly changing. That is why Vimalakirti said that all things are established on a non-abiding abiding basis. Even so, this is the time and place where you create a peaceful life. I'm confused about this um, abiding and non-abiding. So it says abiding is lasting a long time, enduring. So that would be permanent. No, no, lasting a long time. No, long does not mean that it's permanent. He had an abiding respect for her. So, so, uh, oops, sorry. So non-abiding would mean that things are changing every moment. Yeah, the, that's the momentariness, yeah. But he always uses the contrast, right? He offers you both. And then at the end, he usually says, well, it's not really the, this, you know. When you said he, are you talking, who are you talking about? Category? Uh, well, Category explains some other uh, or Well, here he quotes him, yes, said that all things are established on a non-abiding basis. And so then he says, even so, this is the time and place where you create a peaceful life. So normally we probably would anticipate that we want a, a abiding basis, no? rather than a non-abiding. Well, we don't want things to change. Right. So. Is when they're like, good. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, is this like living moment, living in the moment? Yeah, because, yeah, so whatever, whatever we are just talking about does not exist anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just, and even what, what I just finished saying or whatever you finished saying, that doesn't exist anymore. It's in the past. And if we really think about it, our memory will pick up something, but it will not be exactly what it was in the moment. So all we have is the, the temporary present. And that is very fleeting too. I do not know whether you're uh, familiar with Kenhin, we probably are, when we do walking meditation. So when I first learned it, uh, learned it the, the monk would say, um, rising, staying, descending, 
or some other things, you know, perishing or different formulations. So the rising, yes, that, that is really coming to the point that to the moment, but it's not even considered as some kind of a time element. It just gives you some kind of an analysis that, that you can do the walking and be really concentrated on. The only thing that really exists at that moment is, is your foot up. Does it make sense? No? Yes, it does to me. Okay. A bhikkhu bodhi um, on, in his Saturday morning meditation classes uh, lately has been including um, walking meditation, as he calls it. And um, it in the Theravada tradition, it is very much considered the practice of impermanence, helping to make impermanence, mm -hmm. help us, you know, the, whoever's practicing it become aware of impermanence. Um, so just well, like Ravi said. <laughs> no, uh, thank you. Well, I, I learned it in a Theravada monastery in India. I really like this concept. I, I find it so interesting that uh, typically I've always considered like creating something on a foundation, something that's going to last and um, is permanent. And this talks about creating a foundation and a thing that is constantly changing. I find that to be a very interesting idea. And in the end, whatever you intend to do, that's what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, impermanence is, is one of, you know, the major Buddhist insights. Mm -hmm. So, which, yeah. which is such a modern theory in, in, the, in the West. Charity, how, how long did you stay at the monastery? I... That was in 1973. Um, so I, I don't know exactly, maybe it was three, four weeks. Um, and there was only that one monk and his cook. And then uh, another person came. But um, there were also visitors like uh, monks from Thailand and they would have congregations, and they, they will recite the Pali Canon and teach the younger monks to learn it by recitation. Traditionally, uh, they did not do it there, but um, traditionally it would be that actually not only that the younger monks or the novices uh, will study during the day, but at night, like two o'clock, um, a seasoned monk will come to the cell of the novice and will recite part of the canon that the novice was learning during the day. And he will recite it in, uh, while this novice is asleep. Hmm. And were, were you able to understand um, 
let's say, uh, non-Western things there. Like, uh, there is a different difference between Western and Eastern culture, right? So were yes. you able to learn some other things there? Uh, well, um, I am uh, that... <laughs> That is my job. <laughs> so that's why I was I was there. I yeah. But I, I don't know what in particular you have in mind. Well, we just read um, the the author of the book saying this kind of barrier or shock between uh, Americans and Japanese in his case, right? So he's talking about the conception. I understand the conception of life as you are taught in certain specific culture. So these this concepts are kind of tough to understand at least, at least to me. Um, so I was wondering if you go there and you stay in a monastery or in a place like this, are you able to understand some other stuff beyond this reading and thinking? That was my question. Well, that is a very good question. It's very broad. So, uh, but I, I would like to separate if everybody uh, uh, is uh, patient enough to, <laughs> to, for me to say still something more. Um, so first of all, I came there for research. So being in the monastery was only one part of what I was doing there. Um, the other thing is- Wait, wait, Trouty, you yeah. froze You froze at, for me at least. Did she freeze for other people? No. Oh, okay, go on then. So, um, well, um, uh, Kim, you, you probably will know that I went there for professional reasons. Yeah, but well, I, this I, has been Trouty's life work. It's not just the monastery, right? We go on. Yes. So, but I wanted to say something also about uh, the comment about that Katagiri uh, Roshi was, uh, was Japanese. Um, there was a situation at the end of the Second World War, where, um, well, I actually, you know, because I know people and who have been treated like this, they ended up in those camps because just because they were Japanese in in the United States, and so there is still a stigma against East Asians, especially the Japanese. So that, that, this is what actually uh, Katagiri Roshi was referring to. Yes. But, but then, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the lifestyle and what actually is, um, what are the values of, of the lives is, is uh, very different. I mean, now we have such a, open global uh, situation that uh, might be liberating in a you know common sense um, for lots of people but uh, it might be also damaging because so many people are leaving their traditions behind and 
I do not know whether this is comparable to what happened with the Enlightenment uh, in, in France. Suddenly, you did not have, uh, you know, joint families. Uh, there was a tendency to toward, um, you know, more of nuclear uh, families with the industrialization and all the new ideology. And that's what what is the result, what we have more or less today. So for example, traditionally in Paris, the, the Rosenest streets, they were small because it was an old place. And then uh, uh, architect Hausmann removed all these small streets and made these big avenues and uh, boulevards and, and all this. So this is how we know Paris today. But it changed the life because the people who lived in those small alleys, they had to move just like we do sometimes here in, in Austin, uh, that Austin was overrun on the east side. But anyway, I, I mean, you know, this is a whole lot of other things that I'm bringing in as a comparison. Um. I um I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called Enlighten Up. Uh, it's a story about it's a documentary about a man who gets sent to India to learn about um, many different concepts and cultures. He has zero expectation. I think he's supposed to do yoga like every day, and then at the end of the movie, without him realizing how it happened his life changes quite radically mm -hmm. uh so i think he keeps asking the question and going to different people yeah yeah um, we we saw it on one of our film nights today. yeah and so i think just like the text if you go in with an expectation an idea of what you're going to get you're going to run into trouble i think but um i also think that traveling anywhere no matter what um something seeps in and you learn quite a bit um without realizing mm -hmm. so. that's true i'm not sure uh, when you said the title um i thought it sounded familiar but i am not sure whether i've seen it it's a it's a pretty neat little documentary well, thank you. Thank you. Maybe maybe I get a chance uh, to look it up again. I mean, again, since Kim mentioned it, um, I may have not been there for that night. Thank you. All right. Well, um, it's eight o'clock. So well, how much more do we have on this chapter? I'm just wondering. Okay, let me see. Oh, we have quite a bit. Not really, just a, you know, a page and... There. Maybe we should go to part two? Yeah. Why don't we round it off? Uh, and I believe I am next. Okay. You mustn't go here to play with lights and shadows and give play to your spirit, nor will it do to make up an understanding in terms of nothingness. When you feel something broad and magnanimous, the big world where our warm hearts communicate with each other, you could easily stop and play with your ideas about what you have experienced. But don't stop and play with those ideas. Pass them by. 
If you get stuck in enlightenment, you separate your life from others' lives and people won't accept you. Playing the spiritual life makes you a ghost. Your life is up in the air. So whatever you experience, don't get stuck there. If you see the flashing lights of egoist thoughts, plant your foot on the ground and just keep going. Don't stay with anything, just go ahead. That is the Buddhist spirit. Then your life constantly deepens. An ancient said, better you should give rise to a view of existence as big as Mount Sumeru then you produce a view of nothingness as small as a mustard seed. I'm just, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that. <laughs> you have understood the universal perspective. You have big ideas and your heart is as big as Mount Sumeru. That's fine. When you understand nothingness, Nothingness gives you great spiritual encouragement to keep going. But if you attach to the wonderful aliveness in your life, that attachment <coughs> is like a mustard seed. Your understanding may be huge, but a subtle understanding, a subtle attachment is still there. That tiny seed is dangerous for you because it doesn't let you be free. If you don't notice it, you are always creating problems in the human world. So take care of this subtle attachment very carefully <coughs> and try to be free from it. Then that tiny seed also becomes a great encouragement to keep going. People of the lesser two vehicles often fall one-sidedly into this view. You have a big head that wants to understand Buddha's teaching, so we have to talk about it. Then, little by little, you build up a kind of theoretical Buddhology in your head. Maybe you think Nirvana is the goal, something you can reach by obeying Buddhist teaching. But if you attach to such a goal, you are stuck in your concepts of nirvana and you cannot move on inch. You cannot find a peaceful life that way because the peaceful life that you are seeking is not a concept. So your real goal is to be free from your goal. Whether you attain enlightenment or not doesn't matter. What matters is that you keep going. That's all we can do. You create your world, your life, if you seek a peaceful life. You must be peaceful. Don't be critical. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge others. Just keep going. Finally reach your real goal. The place where your life is fully alive. Maybe you have never experienced the full aliveness of life. But if you feel something from this teaching, just move toward it. That is our effort. Instead of taking care of our life according to our own ideas, we are learning to take care of all beings from a universal perspective. We pay attention to the real reality we live in and try to be present there. 
having your own ideas is fine, but please open yourself. Listen to your heart, others' hearts, and live together in peace. That is the point of Yun Min's teaching in the Blue Cliff Record. So are we having 10 minutes for writing or meditating? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. I vote for writing. Okay. Well, I mean, one can write and the other one can meditate. Like last time when, when we had the really fascinating instructions, um, I, I had to meditate. So 10 minutes, yes? Yes. Thank you. <clears throat> It wasn't very audible. <laughs> Anyone would like to share? I can share. Uh, I thought that this reading was very freeing, especially when it talked about releasing like our history, our, our lessons, our preconceptions. Would someone I talk? I want to see if I can hear. Yes, they are talking. Can you hear us? Can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear? Yay. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I was saying, uh, I found this reading very freeing. Uh, I like the idea of just like letting go of our, our lessons and uh, histories and preconceptions. Uh, it's very easy for me to chain myself up in anxieties and prejudices, perhaps because it's familiar. It's more comfortable to suffer than to be at ease and rest. Uh, I like this goal of just keep trying to live in the present in the zero. Uh, there's kind of a generosity that allows for moments of failure and is pretty achievable um, to just keep trying. And it's funny that uh, I go to Zen poetry writing group on Thursdays, and I think I've worried about like maybe in writing about impermanent moments of memories and, and objects, I'm creating a permanence with writing. But I think another way to look at it is that I've been trying to examine moments and memories in my life in a way that I hadn't seen before, hadn't considered. Um, so I'm trying to look at the other side of a page, which has sort of like a blank freedom to it. So. Yeah, I, I've thought sometimes there's a problem with photographing a wedding. 
you know, because and that takes you away. And some people like go and see these great sites and they don't pay attention to the site. They just yes. take the picture and then turn around and. Exactly. Exactly. So I understand what you're saying, but to, but it, it does help. It seems to, for me to, to uh, examine these moments. Maybe they can even mean more than when you were there. Yeah, I think that's uh, sometimes very much the case. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, Donna, please. Um, I was particularly taken with his talk about not going down the, the rabbit hole of Buddhist studies. <laughs> <laughs> um, I lately have joined a group that is chanting the last chapter of the Flower Ornament Sutra. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh my, um, the, as I was, you know, doing some studying this morning, it occurred to me that um, I, I was reading Thomas Clary's sort of introduction to that last chapter, where he was going through all the different, the diff 10 different stages and what each of the, the teachers represented. And I, I, I suddenly had this thought that, that this is like Abhidharma, but without all the, you know, the, the lovely grid and the constructs and, you know, that this is much more free form. And um, so part, part of me is really trying to, you know, the, between Bhikkhu Bodhi's class, you know, classes on Abhidharma and, um, we're, you know, working our way through some sutras, um, uh, some of the numerical sutras, and then, uh, you know, kind of doing like a 180 over to these Zen texts. And I think Kim's question about suffering was really, you know, it's like, boom, where's the suffering in Katagiri Roshi? You know, the, the approach to suffering is so different in the Theravada, in the, you know, in the early Buddhist sutras. And um, the only, only, you know, even remotely insightful thought that I had while, while we were writing was that as Katagiri Roshi is, um, you know, he's not calling out suffering, but what he is calling us to is this huge universal view of, um, of life, of practice. It's not, you know, sort of the smaller, uh, smaller practice of, you know, it's, it's all body, speech, and mind. But in the Theravada, it's very much my body, speech, and mind. Um, it seems like Katagiri Roshi is trying to, um, put it all in a much larger universal context, which I think is what the Mahayana, mm -hmm. you know, right. seems to have been doing uh, and all of its very, you know, whether it's the Lotus Sutra, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, and now our friend, the Flower Ornament Sutra. 
or Abhatam Saka Sutra. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, part of, you know, it's, I don't expect all these different forms of Buddhism to line up and, you know, suddenly the light goes on and it all makes sense because it's 2,500 years worth of development. And, you know, talk about impermanence, <laughs> you know, the things and, and, you know, the changes in conditions. It's just this astonishing flowering of this teaching through time. But, you know, I still occasionally like to try to see how, you know, how things line up. And, and lately I have noticed that in the, in the Zen teachings in particular, we don't get, you know, we've got precepts, we've got paramitas, where we take on some of these, you know, some of those basic questions that they were dealing with with early Buddhism. But in a, a text like this, um, they're just, you know, Katagiri Roshi's approach is just so totally different to dealing with suffering. You know, he hardly even names it. You know, he's got just a very, very different approach to it. So that was, you know, my <laughs> my 10 minutes worth. Well, thank you. you. This, this, this do, is do, do you know the, Donna, do you know the expression assumed and dismissed? And maybe that's that's the deal, that it's just so assumed that they don't think about even talking about it. I don't know. Well, what I have noticed uh, and, you know, I, I, for one, am thrilled with it, the advent of Zoom into, into the Dharma world, uh, because now I get to hear Reb Anderson's Dharma talks every couple of weeks. And one of the things that I've discovered is that, you know, Reb really has, um, you know, he's done deep dives into all of this. And all that early Buddhist teaching is behind his Zen teaching. He just doesn't call it out. So, I mean, that may very well be what you're talking about there. That I don't know that he's, he's um, you know, he certainly hasn't, you know, blown it off. But, you know, he's, um, it's, it just realize all that learning is being worn very lightly, but it's there. And, but he's, and I assume that this, I just not as familiar with Katagiri Roshi. So I'm assuming that all of that, you know, Buddhist, you know, philosophy and thought is here in Katagiri Roshi. We're just getting, you know, what he is sharing with his students and with us by way of this book. But, you know, the thoughts underlying. And, and so what I was seeing tonight was especially that Mahayana universalism, you know, this, this huge open openness to, to everything <laughs> and everything is practice. And also, I think that was earlier um, that uh, he uh, sort of emphasized that actually we are the universe, right? Mm-hmm. So, and uh, that, I mean, that, that is so mind boggling, right? Because at the same time, you you are an individual and at the, at the same time too, 
you're part of the universe. So, I mean, it must, must be in the feeling or rather I should say experience. Um, otherwise you cannot say it. Yeah. Or yeah. our experience it. I mean, it's not about saying that's again object a subject, right? Well, it's like Abhidharma. Uh, I, well, I don't know if you've done much work with Abhidharma, but it is mind boggling the, the experiences that those, those meditators, you know, the depth of their meditative insight and what they could bring back. And then this astonishing array of, you know, they put it in <laughs> and, and, yeah. And and that get the same sort of feeling with uh, the with the flower ornament sutra that you know the again you know the the meditators and the people who have you know they've looked and experienced these Mahayana ideals of interdependence you know out to an extreme that is just again, mind-boggling, <laughs> you know, they have just carried it so far out, out to the universe and perhaps even beyond, <laughs> so. When you refer to Abhidharma, are you referring to the third basket? Yes. Pitaka? Mm -hmm. So that is supposed to be, as, as you know, uh, supposed to be actually a collection of topics and questions that the Buddha did not want to answer. And that was collected then a little bit later on. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I, I, when I was in India at another occasion, um, um, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, it's impenetrable if you, if you look at it at first. And so I went, I went to some of the monks um, and, uh, in, in Gaya, and I, I wanted if, if they could uh, sort of help me to get into it, and they were not interested. <laughs> and I, I don't think these were Theravada monks. Um, I think they were Tibetan monks. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I, I think, you know, there is, there are is a Mahayana Abhidharma yes. school, but um, I think that's later on. That's the right. Vasubandhu and his brother, yes, Asanga. Yes, yes, and and the Vasudhamaga and yes, you know, and the Vasudhamaga is actually readable, but <laughs> but you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi was working with the manual of Abhidharma, the the manual that. Thai, especially the Thai and Burmese students memorized before they even start their studies. And, you know, it's some of the most, I think you could make an, an astonishing artwork, sort of a, a, a digital electronic um, artwork out of those Abhidharma, you know, where, you know, different parts of, of the experience would light up different parts of those astonishing grids and constructions that they made of this is related to this is related to this um but you know oh my gosh you know talk about going down the rabbit hole 
You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I know enough to appreciate it. And I think that's enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> but, but, um, but you are brave. <laughs> well, Bhikkhu Bodhi is a very good teacher. <laughs> so yes. and I'll very... read the first three lines of my thing about rabbit holes. Please. But, but you'll just have to wait to see my artwork. There used to be ditches along every road. Now the ditches are underground, so we can't see them, but they are still there. Nice. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> you know, and they're harder to see, right? Because they're hidden. <laughs> and, you know, I really hadn't noticed, you know, I mean, it's the difference between childhood and I guess living in a big city. Mm, yes. Mm. Anybody else? <clears throat> well, um, I think our time is up. So thank you very much, uh, especially for the contributions. That that was very nice. This okay. was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Till next time. Goodbye. Take care. Yeah. Take care. Bye bye.